Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. So I was riding in my car. I'm driving, and this Klansman was sitting in my passenger seat. And we got on the on the topic of a crime. And he made the mention that uh, black people are born with a gene that makes them violent. And I said, look, I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. I have never done a drive-by or a carjacking. How do you explain that? This man did not hesitate one second. He answered me instantly. He said, your gene is latent. It hasn't come out yet. That's Daryl Davis, a blues musician. And yeah, you heard him right. He's driving in his car with a member of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, I was speechless. I was dumbfounded. And he's sitting next to me all smug and secure, like, uh-huh, you see, you know, you have nothing to say. And I thought about it for a moment. Rather than attack him, just say, it's not true, it's not true. I said to him, I said, you know, white people have a gene within them that make them serial killers. And he said, why would you say that? I said, well, face it, name me three black serial killers. He thought about it. He couldn't name anybody. He couldn't do it. I rattled off Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Henry Lee Lucas, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, uh, Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler. And I said, son, you are a serial killer. And he said, Daryl, I've never killed anybody. I said, your gene is latent. hasn't come out yet. He said, well, that's stupid. And I said, well, duh, <laughs> it is stupid. And he got very, very quiet. And I could tell that the gears in, in his head were spinning super fast, probably, you know, burning a hole in there. And then he, you know, a moment later, you know, he changed the subject. But within five months, this guy quit the Ku Klux Klan. 
Since that car ride 30 years ago, Daryl Davis has gone on to convince dozens of people to leave the Ku Klux Klan. Convincing someone else to change their mind, their view of reality, is one of the most elusive, coveted types of change, which is why Daryl's story feels so improbable. So how does he do it? I'm Maya Shunker. As a cognitive scientist, I've always been fascinated by how we change our minds and why we change our minds. On this show, I'll have intimate conversations with people who've navigated extraordinary change. And hopefully their stories will get us to think differently about change in our own lives. This is a slight change of plans. didn't set out to change anyone's mind. He was mostly just focused on his music. But one night, his life took an unexpected turn when he was playing a show at a bar called the Silver Dollar Lounge. The Silver Dollar Lounge at the time was an all-white lounge. And I say that not meaning that Black people could not go in, but meaning that they did not go in by their own choice because they were not welcome there. And when you go somewhere where you're not welcome and uh, alcohol is being served, sometimes it does not make for a good combination, especially when you're outnumbered. So we took a break after the first set, and I was walking across the dance floor to go sit you know, with the bandmates when somebody approached me from behind and put their arm around my shoulder. Now, I don't know anybody in this place, so I'm turning around to see who's touching me. And it was this gentleman maybe 15, 18 years older than me. And he's all excited. He says, man, I sure like your piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I told him, I said, well, Jerry Lee got it from the same place I did, from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. Oh, no, 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 no. I ain't never heard no black man play like that except for you. Jerry Lee invented that style. I said, look, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a good friend of mine. He's told me himself where he learned how to play. The guy didn't buy that either. But he was so fascinated with me that he wanted me to come back to his table. He's going to buy me a drink. So I don't drink, but I agreed to have a cranberry juice. He bought it, paid the waitress, and then he took his glass and he clinked my glass and cheered me. And then he announces, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down with a black man and had a drink. So innocently, I asked him, why? And he didn't answer me at first. I asked him again. And his buddy sitting next to him elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him. And the guy looked at me and said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I burst out laughing at him because now I did not believe him. I thought he was you know, pulling a joke on me. I'm laughing. He goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, flips through it, and hands me his Klan membership card. I recognize the Klan insignia, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center of the cross. And I, I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, you know, this is for real. So I stopped laughing. But he was, you know, very friendly and, and very uh, appreciative of, of my music and all excited. He gave me his phone number to, uh, you know, to call him whenever I was to return to this bar with this band. And so I'd call him every six weeks and say, hey, man, you know, I'm down there at the Silver Dollar this weekend. Come on out. You say it so nonchalantly. Like, so I called the guy. It is remarkable that you called this person. And 
you know, I don't think I'm alone in, in, in struggling to understand, you know, what was going through, through your mind at this moment. If someone told me that they were in the freaking clan, I would certainly not call them back. In fact, I'd probably just flee the scene. And, and I think this is for pretty good reasons. Well, you know, I was questioning myself for a second, like, what the heck am I doing sitting here with a clansman? But the guy was friendly. He disputed the things that I had in mind uh, of uh, the image of a typical clansman. And he wanted to share my music with uh, some of his fellow clansmen and clanswomen. Hmm. And they would, you know, get on the dance floor and dance to our music. You know, they didn't come in robes and hoods, right? You know, they came in, you know, regular street clothes. This goes on for a year, an entire year. Daryl would play a gig at this bar, and he would invite clan members to watch him play. This is one of those things that makes Daryl so unusual. I mean, for me, a huge part of what makes someone who they are is their belief system. And so if we share the same taste in music, that's fine, that's great. But if I then find out they're a flagrant racist, that's going to fully eclipse everything else about them. So how does Daryl look past that? He says it's not like that. He wasn't looking past it. He wanted to learn from it. See, Daryl had spent his early childhood overseas in a school he describes as a United Nations for little kids. Race was always in the background. But when he moved back to the States when he was 10, he couldn't escape racism. And ever since then, he's been interested in why people hate. I had had an experience at the age of 10 where some racist people threw rocks and bottles at me during a parade in which I was the only black participant. And never having had this happen to me before, I was perplexed as to why people were doing this. And when later my parents explained that it was racism, my 10-year-old brain could not process the idea that someone who had never seen me before, who had never spoken with me and knew nothing about me, would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. You know, uh, that just did not compute with me. Well, later when I realized this was true, there are people like that, I formed a question in my mind, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And some people would just say, well, Daryl, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, no, it's not just the way it is. There has to be a reason behind it. Well, it's always been that way. That was not good enough for me. I wanted to get to the nucleus of it. So Daryl dedicates himself to answering this question. He devours books about race and racism. He reads nearly every book that exists on the Klan. But he's still unsatisfied. So he decides he wants to write his own book about the Klan. All the books written on the Klan, except for mine, have been written by white authors. You know, white authors obviously have an easier time getting in contact with the Klan and sitting down and not fearing any ramifications or whatever. Or they might even join the Klan undercover. A Klansman would have a different perspective sitting there talking to a black person than he would a white person. And how, how do you feel that perspective would have been different? Because he's sitting there telling the person that he hates why he hates them. So now he's having to face me and face those same questions, you know, that, he, that, that somebody would ask, or even different questions that a, that a white interviewer, journalist, uh, would not ask. Because they don't think of them, because they don't feel the, things, the same things that I feel. As Daryl starts researching for his book, it suddenly dawns on him. He already knows someone in the Klan, that guy from the Silver Dollar Lounge. So he goes on a mission to track him down. It takes a while, but eventually he finds the guy's address. And I knocked on the door, you know, unannounced. 
And he opens the door and sees me. He goes, Daryl, you know, what are you doing here? And he, he, looked, he looked up and down the hallway to see if I brought anybody with me. So it was more him who was intimidated than me. And uh, when, he, when he stepped out of his apartment, I stepped in. So he turns around, comes back in. So now we're, we're standing inside his apartment. And he says, you know, what's going on? Are you still playing? What's going on? I say, yeah, 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 I'm still playing. But listen, I need to talk to you about the Klan. He says, the Klan? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I quit. You know, I, I quit a while back. I said, well, you know, where's all your Klan stuff? He says, well, they came and got it. And I said, what do you mean they came and got your Robin Hood? You know, don't, don't you own it? And he explained to me, when you join the Klan, if you have the money to pay for it, you can purchase your Robin Hood and it's yours to keep forever. If you cannot afford it at the time, you can still take it home with you, but you put a little extra money in every time you pay your dues until you pay it off. Sort of like layaway kind of thing. A bizarre financial aid system within the Klan. Love it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, equal opportunity <laughs> for everyone who's racist. Great. That's right. Okay. Absolutely. So uh, anyway, he said that um, uh, they came and got it, but when they came to get it, he could not find the mask. And um, he, he had since found it, and he, and he needed to return it. I said, well, can I see it? So he goes down the hallway, comes back, and hands me the mask. And I said to him, I said, do you know Roger Kelly? And he says, yeah, Roger was my grand dragon. I know him. And I said, well, listen, I need you to hook me up with Mr. Kelly. I want you to interview him. I'm going to write a book on the Klan. Now, let me explain how the hierarchy of the Klan works so you understand these terms. Uh, we would call a state leader a governor. They call that the grand dragon, a mayor. That person is known as the exalted cyclops. Anybody on the great level is, uh, yeah. Sorry, the self-importance of these names is, is truly astonishing. Well, see, that's, yeah, but see, that's also what attracts people because, you know, they, they get titles, they feel important. Yes. It's, it's a sense of self-importance, you know, because they're, they're not getting that from the society in which they live. So, you know, this brotherhood, this gang, if you will, gives them those things. So at the time, Roger Kelly was the Grand Dragon, state leader from Maryland. So I said, I'll tell you what, you need to return this mask, right? He said, yeah. I said, give me Roger Kelly's phone number and his address, and I'll go return it for you. And he snatched that thing right out of my hand and said, no way. And so I begged and pleaded with him. Well, he finally gave it to me on the condition that I not reveal to Mr. Kelly where I got it. And um, he warned me. He said, Daryl, do not go to Roger Kelly's house. Roger Kelly will kill you. And I said, well, that's, that's the whole reason why I need to talk to Mr. Kelly. I need to know why would he kill me? What, what is going on in, in his mind when he sees me? I have to understand this. You did realize that you might not get the answer to the question if, in fact, the um, dangerous part happened first, right? Uh, true. This is true. But, but, I, but I, I was thinking, you know, that um, I, would, I would prevail. I'm the eternal optimist, if you will. Well, I am not the eternal optimist. And Daryl's decision feels incredibly risky. But anyway... He has his secretary, Mary, call and schedule the interview. And he gives her one important instruction. Do not tell him that I'm black and see if he would consent to sitting down and giving her boss an interview. I figured, you know, he might pick up in my voice that I'm black. And uh, I didn't want him to hang up the phone and say, am I talking to you? And then my whole project would have ended before it ever got started. Roger Kelly agrees to meet for an interview one evening at a nearby motel. Daryl gets to the motel early with Mary. He's not sure if Roger will even agree to step foot in the room. But if he does, Daryl wants to be hospitable. He asks Mary to fill up the ice bucket and buy some sodas. 
And then they start arranging the room. There's not much to arrange. There's the ice bucket, a table, two chairs, and Daryl's canvas bag, which has his tape recorder and a Bible. The Klan claims to be a Christian organization, and they claim that the Bible preaches uh, racial separation. Now, in my reading of the Bible, I have never seen anything like that in there. So I want to be able to pull out my Bible and hand it to him and say, here, Mr. Kelly, please show me chapter and verse where it says blacks and whites must be separate. So I'm all prepared, right? Right on time, right to the minute, 515, knock, knock, knock on the door. In walks what is known as the Grand Nighthawk. Nighthawk means bodyguard, uh, security. He's dressed in military camouflage, and he has that clan patch on his chest on one side. On the other side of his chest are the initials KKK, and embroidered on his cap, it said Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And on his hip, he had a semi-automatic handgun in a holster. He comes in. Mr. Kelly is walking directly behind him, carrying a briefcase and a dark blue suit and tie. And the Nighthawk turned the corner and saw me and just froze in his tracks. So Mr. Kelly slammed into his back and knocked this guy forward. And now they, they both are stumbling around trying to you know, regain their balance. And they're like looking all around the room like, uh-uh, something's not right here. And I'm just sitting at the table looking at their faces. And I could read their faces like a billboard. Uh, their faces were saying to me, uh, did the desk clerk give us the wrong room number? Did, you, did, did we misunderstand something? Or, or is this an ambush? So, you know, I saw the apprehension. And so I stood up and I displayed both of my palms to show I had nothing in my hands. And I walked forward. I extended my right hand. And I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. I'm Daryl Davis. We'll be right back with a slight change of plans. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Should you send that email you wrote while you were mad? Probably not. Probiotics can't help with all of your gut decisions. But if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. Food choices, stress, or travel can throw off your gut health. That's where Ritual comes in. They made a three-in-one supplement called Symbiotic Plus with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. I make sure to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning, and I always appreciate that it's in a single minty capsule. Ritual prioritizes sustainably sourced ingredients and lower carbon packaging for its products, which is another reason I feel good about taking Symbiotic Plus. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash slight. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash slight for 25% off. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. 
They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. You're listening to A Slight Change of Plans. I'm Maya Shunker. So there they are, Roger Kelly, the Grand Dragon of the Clan, face-to-face with Daryl Davis. Daryl reaches out to shake Roger's hand, and Roger shakes his hand back. It seems like the interview is going to happen. But before he can dive in with his first question, Roger asks to see Daryl's ID. So Daryl hands him his driver's license. And then he looks at it and he says, oh, you live on such and such street. And so now I'm wondering, why is this man reading my address? You know, is he going to come burn across at my house or, you know, what? So that had me a little concerned, but I didn't want to let him know that he had rattled me a little bit. And so I said to him, I said, yes, Mr. Kelly, that is where I live. And you live at, and I named his house number and his street. That's a pretty good mic drop line. Yeah, because, you know, if you come visit me, I'm going to come visit you. So, you know, maybe it's better that we just confine all this visiting to this motel room. So anyway, we started with this interview. This is the actual cassette tape from the meeting. Okay. First, uh, what got you interested in the uh, Ku Klux Klan? I was always interested as a kid, you know, when I was going to school, I was interested. I was fascinated by the uh, rituals of robes, cross burning, you know, and things like that. Hey, and did you have family in the clan? Was like a friend introduced you to the clan? My grandpa was in the clan years ago. You know, we, we began talking, and every time my cassette would run out of tape, I'd reach down into my bag to get a fresh cassette, or if Mr. Kelly tried to make some biblical point, I'd reach down in my bag and pull out the Bible. The uh, Nighthawk was standing to Mr. Kelly's right at full attention. And um, every time I reached down, the Nighthawk reached up to his gun. Well, uh, after about an hour or so, the bodyguard relaxed. He realized there was no threat in the bag, and I went in and out of the bag. He didn't move. A little over an hour into this, 
Mr. Kelly and I were just having, you know, casual conversation, and there was a quick, uh, short noise that occurred out of nowhere. It sounded like this. And because it came out of nowhere, suddenly, and it was so fast and so short, my ear could not discern it. So I perceived it to be a threatening noise. I knew that Mr. Kelly had made this noise. How did I know that? Because I didn't make it. And I, I feared for my life. I'm not armed. My secretary is not armed. The only person who I know for sure is armed is the Nighthawk. I can see his gun on his hip. I don't know if Mr. Kelly carries one up under his suit jacket or not. All I know is, you know, I don't want to die. I'm looking right into Mr. Kelly's eyes. I mean, I'm just like inches away from him. And his eyes were fixated on mine. Mine were fixated on his. Neither one of us said a word. My eyes were saying to him, what did you just do? And I realized his eyes were saying to me, what did you just do? And the Nighthawk was looking back and forth between both of us, like what did either one of y'all just do? Well, Mary was sitting to my left on top of the dresser because there were no more chairs in the room. And she realized what had happened. And she began explaining it to us when it happened again. The ice in the ice bucket had begun melting and the cans of soda pop were shifting down the ice. Wow. And then, of course, when she explained it and it happened again, you know, we all began laughing. (laughs) We all began laughing at the same thing. Everybody in that room became human in that moment. We all feared. We all feared each other. Somebody could have gotten shot over an ice cube. All right? Just think about that for a second. After this interview, Daryl and Roger keep in touch. Daryl is still curious about Roger's perspective and how it might answer the question Daryl's been asking for decades. How can you hate me if you don't even know me? And now the two were actually getting to know each other. Was there a point where you thought, hey, wait a second, I might actually be able to get this Roger Kelly guy to change his mind about this? Here's the thing, Maya. I never set out to change anybody. Not the first time, by any means, because you know I, didn't, I never expected anybody to change. All I wanted to know was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? That's all I want to know. And, and I never expected to see, to see these people again. But when you're sitting there one-on-one with somebody, it's hard to hate them. As a human being, it's hard to hate them. And, and it's hard for them to hate you, even though they may try. Was there something specific that he did or that he said where you saw that there was an in? Yeah. Uh, I began noticing changes in his, um, in his behavior, in his language. He'd been to my house. Uh, his bodyguard would come with him initially. And we would have lunch or dinner at my table. I never got invited to his house. But then when he became Imperial Wizard, uh, he began inviting me to his mm-hmm. house. And, and, and already he was coming down to my house without, without his bodyguard. He trusted me that much. This goes on for over five years. Eventually, Roger quits the clan. But he doesn't simply step down and hand it over to someone else. He shuts down his entire chapter. And he cites his friendship with Daryl as being the reason. Daryl since inspired over 200 people to leave white supremacist groups. And Daryl's story of changing people's minds doesn't end there. He's still doing this kind of work today, all over the world. And I wanted to dig in deeper on his approach. I know you don't like saying that you change people's minds, right? You, you inspire them to change their own minds. Right. So when it comes to inspiring them to change their own minds, 
did you have to adapt your approach at all when when dealing with different types of folks? Absolutely. Because, you know, just like if somebody, you know, you're a musician and uh, you play violin, and I don't know if you're right-handed or left-handed. Left-handed. Hey, shout out to all the lefties. (laughs) (laughs) Some people are wired left-handed. Some people are wired right-handed. It doesn't make uh, one person better than the other. It just happens to be how they're wired. Likewise, how we make decisions depends upon how we're wired. Some people are wired to make decisions based upon their emotions. Others make decisions based upon their logic. So first you determine how does somebody um, decide something. Mm -hmm. If If they make decisions based upon emotion, then there's no way in heck you're going to get them to get them to see your point if you bring a logical perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing if you if you're dealing with a scientist or somebody who deals in data and logic and evidence, don't come with an emotional argument. You know they're not even going to listen to you. Show them the data, show them the stats, the test results. So you know you have to go to where they are, and oftentimes we miss that. We don't understand that because we haven't taken the time. I've seen it happen time and time again. So a Klansman comes in, comes into my room to be interviewed or whatever. We meet. As soon as he or she sees me, the wall goes right up. You cannot impart any intelligent information to them when their wall is up. Because when their wall is up, their ears are plugged and they're shutting you out. Your mission is to bring the wall down. So I'm sitting there two feet from the guy and he's telling me that I'm a criminal and that I'm lazy and that I'm unintelligent, basing all of this based on my, on my black skin. So when he's done radiating all this vitriol, his wall has come down because I haven't pushed back. And he's curious as to why I haven't pushed back because he's so accustomed to, to, to being pushed back on. And so now I've thrown him off his game. And he wants to know, well, how do I feel about all this? I could go on the offense and attack him verbally and say, no, you are the criminal. You are the ones hanging black men from trees and bombing black churches and dragging black men behind pickup trucks. And I would be 100% correct. But rather than go on the offense, because if I did that, that wall would go right back up and he wouldn't hear a word I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Instead of going on the offense, I go on the defense. And Maya, here's what happens. He goes home. And at the end of the day, like we all do, we reflect on what transpired during the day before we go to bed. He thinks, man, you know, I had a three-hour conversation today with a black guy, you know, and we didn't come to blows. You know, we might have gotten a little loud, but we didn't come to blows. And in most cases with me, most people have changed their perspectives. So I don't think many people in their everyday lives are going to be interacting with members of the Klan, obviously, but um, many of us, many listeners of this podcast do encounter racism and prejudice on a daily basis. And, you know, when I first heard about your story, I thought, wow, if this man can convince Klan members to leave, then anything is possible. Um, But it, it feels like maybe things are a little bit more complicated than that, right? Because in order to get someone to be less racist, a necessary step is for them to identify that they are, in fact, being racist. And Klan members are already brazen and celebratory in their racism. Um, But if you were to challenge a mom or a dad who says in private, you know, 
that they'd prefer if their daughter not marry a black man. Um, they might not be willing to acknowledge this prejudice within themselves. And so I'm curious to know what advice you'd give to people who are trying to help those around them simply acknowledge their own prejudices. By sitting down and saying, hey, let's, let's not have a debate. Let's have a conversation. Like, for example, just the other day, uh, a, a very good friend of mine, uh, his fellow musician, and, and we both like music of the 50s, you know, Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, all that stuff. And uh, he posted on Facebook, um, I wish we could re uh, return to the mindset of the 50s. And all these people, you know, gave him a thumbs up and likes and all that kind of stuff. So I, I saw it and I, and I wrote on there, hmm, dot, dot, dot. I said, maybe we should return, bring back the, uh, the music maybe bring back some of the cool cars and definitely some of the low prices, but perhaps not the mindset. Hmm. And see, and that's a whole different perspective. You will never hear black people talk about the good old days because we didn't have good old days. Mm -hmm. you, know, and, you know, I love the music of the 50s, but would I want to go back to that era? No, because in that era, I would have to be drinking from a separate water fountain, riding in the back of the bus, not being served in certain restaurants. I don't want to go back to that. But see, that didn't even occur to him. Why did it not occur to him? Because he has white privilege. And, you know, it, it was just plain ignorance. So I had to just point it out to him. He wasn't trying to be offensive or anything like that. He just didn't know. How do you think about the difference between labeling behaviors as racist versus people as racist and how that difference in focus might affect people's ability to change? You put a label on somebody, they tend to carry it. Um, it, it. It damages them. And if they have paid their price, you know, they've given that up, they should not have to wear that label anymore. We, we need to break them from that. Otherwise, what, what do they have left? How, how do they feel whole? Mm. You know, we, we, we can't do that to people. <laughs> During my time at the Obama White House, when we were designing reentry guides for people who were leaving prison, we made sure not to use labels like ex-convicts or ex-prisoners and instead use forward-looking language like community members. And this was based on the idea that people often act in ways that strongly align with their social identities. And, you know, they can often feel fixed in those identities. Yes. Like if they've, if they've paid the price, they have accepted responsibility and accountability, then why should we label them that way? <laughs> label them as to what they are at the time. Daryl's now working with the State Department. They send him on trips to Israel, India, and other countries to talk about prejudice and bigotry and how to tackle the deep inequities of race, class, and caste. He also gives dozens of lectures a year at universities. And I'll, you know, at the end of the lecture, I'll do a Q&A. There'll be some students standing off in the distance, not doing anything, just kind of milling around. When the crowd dissipates and goes away from the podium, he or she will then approach me. And they'll like look around, make sure nobody's within earshot. And they'll say, oh, you know, I enjoyed your lecture, uh, Mr. Davis. You know, I was raised that way. My mother is in the Klan or my father's a neo-Nazi. Mm. You know, this is how, how I grew up. But now I'm here at University of whatever. And um, my, my, my boyfriend is, uh, is Jewish or my girlfriend is black. And I, I, can't bring, I can't bring that person home. My parents will kill me or, you know, or they'll disown me. And how do they go home and tell their parents that their parents were wrong? 
Mm-hmm. You know, their parents wanted them to go and get an education, but they didn't want them to get that education. <laughs> <laughs> so they've got this secret burning on their chest, you know, that just has to come out. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of the perfect persons that, you know, that they can talk to about it. And I'll, I'll sit down and talk with them and, you know, give them some advice and things like that and try to smooth things out for them, you know, help, help them out. Um, you know, I get a lot of those kinds of emails. Guys want, you know, want me to talk to their brother or some kid wants me to talk to their parents or some wife wants me to talk to her husband. Wow. We need something like, you know, a race anonymous kind of thing. And uh, I'm planning on, uh, on having a museum one day. In my museum, I'm going to have a component for people to come and talk about, you know, racist spouses or raci- racist parents or racist siblings or something like that. So there, there will be an outlet for them. And hopefully, hopefully that can be replicated around the country. We spent so much of this interview talking about how you inspire change in others. And I'm wondering how this whole experience changed you. I, I just thought I'd meet these people, get my information, write my book, and be done. Never see them again. Uh, what, what you and I and everybody else has heard as children is this. A tiger does not change its stripes. A leopard does not change its spots. So why would we think that a Klansman would change his ideology? You know, uh, people are who they are. But when somebody started changing, and then it happened again and again and again, I realized I was onto something. So what can be what, what can be learned can also be unlearned. I cannot stop doing this work. So I'm making just as much time uh, between my music and doing this kind of work because I, I love my country and I want to see it improve. We spend too much time in this country talking about the other person, talking at the other person, and talking past the other person. I prefer to talk with the other person and that has been the key to my success. Hey, thanks for listening. See you next week for my conversation with comedian and actress Tiffany Haddish. Girl, if I hadn't gone through all the stuff that I've been through, I would not be funny at all. Like, if you think about it, like everything that I am capable of, that I'm able to access, it comes from all of the tragedy. A Slight Change of Plans is created and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. Big thanks to everyone at Pushkin Industries, including our producer, Mola Board, associate producers, David Jaw and Julia Goodman, executive producers, Mia Lavelle and Justine Lang, senior editor, Jen Guerra, and sound design and mix engineers, Ben Tolliday and Jason Gambrell. Thanks also to Luis Guerra, who wrote our theme song, and Ginger Smith, who helped arrange the vocals incidental music from Epidemic Sound. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker. So, Daryl, one of the things that really captivated me on a personal level about your story is that you are a musician. Um, I, I was also a musician in the younger part of my life, and I studied classical violin. 
Okay, I have to correct you on something. You said that you were a musician. Let me tell you something. Once a musician, always a musician. So you're still a musician. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I think my technique would, would violate that assumption, but I think in my heart, I am a musician. I'll give you that. <laughs> hey there. My name is Carlos Whitaker, and I am honored to be the host of the Carlos Whitaker Podcast. What is this Carlos Whitaker Podcast, you may ask yourself? Well, it is a space where every single Thursday, myself and 300,000 or so of my online community friends gather together to have difficult conversations in grace-filled ways. Now, not every single week the conversation is difficult, but we are looking at the current cultural climate of not only America, but planet Earth. And we have a space where people that view the same issue from different perspectives can come together and listen to understand. It is a safe space where I like to say things like this. We don't stand on issues. We walk with people. So if you've been looking for a space where you can finally feel safe enough to engage in important conversations, let me invite you to join me and my community on the Carlos Whitaker podcast. Podcast.